Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. And if this is your first episode, I'm glad you found us and thank you for listening. Today's episode is going to feature Murdy Campbell. And Murdy shares some of his stories from his time in the Stornoway Lifeboat, what makes the Outer Hebrides such a paddler's mecca, and some of his favorite less visited places. So enjoy today's episode with Murdy Campbell. Hello, Murdy. Thank you for joining me today. That's no problem. Delighted. Yeah. Well, tell us, who is Murdy Campbell? Uh, just a normal uh, Hebridean person. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you get your start paddling? I uh, started paddling. I, uh, I got, uh, my wife was a friend of uh, somebody that had a horse and uh, he was into kayaking. I said, I've always fancied trying that. I asked him where he got his canoe and he said, this fellow was building him in Glasgow in his, in his garage. And uh, he said, if you want one, you better get one now because he's going to put the price up. So I just said, order me one. So that's how I started paddling. All right. The sight unseen um, and just decided yeah. to go for it. We'll, we'll talk paddling in just a few minutes. And uh, I, I really want to hear about the Otter Hebrides and, and other adventures that you've had. But first, you're a 30 plus year member of the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. Uh, yes, I'll be uh, 40 years in uh, May. Ah, 40 years. Okay. Well, now for, for those of us from not from the UK, um, tell us what is the RNLI? Uh, it's called the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. It's uh, they save lives at sea. They also do little bits abroad with uh, in Bangladesh with uh, educating uh, lifeguards and stuff like that. But um, it's mainly the UK based uh, where we have lifeboats over three hundred around the coast. All right, so in the U.S., that's probably our equivalent of our Coast Guard. Um, that, that's correct, yeah. Okay, all right. So tell me, what was that experience like over the 40 years? Uh, it's changed a lot over the 40 years. Uh, when I started, we were uh, traveling in eight-knot lifeboats uh, with all, all the basic navigation equipment to now to high-tech 25-knot lifeboats, uh, diff- different models. And what kind of territory did you cover? Uh, well, the lifeboat in our area, uh, we had one of the biggest areas in Scotland and in the UK because we're so, sort of so remote up in the northwest here. So it was quite an, uh, up to over 100 miles off the coast. 100 miles out uh, from the... Yeah. So not just 100 miles of coastline, but 100 miles off the coast as well. Off the coast, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. So can you share any favorite stories from your years on the boat? Yeah, there's been some interesting ones, good ones. Scary ones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember one time, a long time back, we took 30 people off a Romanian factory ship where uh, as the crew were coming down off the ladder, they were taking their suitcases and the weather was getting worse by the minute and the coxswain was telling them to get a move on and uh, one of the crew uh, lowered a old-fashioned lawnmower over the side of the vessel to put out the lifeboat. <laughs> <laughs> where the coxswain said, uh, that's enough, no more luggage, just people. So uh, when they heard that, the suitcases were then getting thrown on the deck of the lifeboat because they didn't want to leave anything behind. Oh. So that was quite a, a funny story. So the the, uh, the lawnmower was the most important thing that person the, could the, think of saving. Yes, <laughs> yes. 
Interesting. Uh, how about them, uh, some paddling uh, stories? Any paddling rescues? Uh, no, we the club up here tend to be well sort of versed in helping themselves. So we've the lifeboat here has never been out for our own club as kayakers, but uh, we have been out to people from the mainland. Okay. Well, that's fantastic, though, that your, uh, your club has that record. Yeah, it is. It's good. Because I was coxswain on the lifeboat, I made sure that they, they would always look after themselves. <laughs> so what is, what is the role of coxswain? Uh, it's like a, like a captain, you could say, sort of in charge of the vessel. All right. And how long did you uh, fill that role? Uh, I was 11 years sec, uh, deputy coxswain, and then the position came up when the coxswain retired. I did that for another 16 years. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. And your role now? I'm a role now, and I'm a assessor trainer with lifeboats. Uh, I go around uh, all the stations in the north of Scotland assessing training and passing out other coxswains. So let's let's get to the paddling. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, that area. So what is the Outer Hebrides? It's very scattered with sea locks, <clears throat> like lots of sheltered areas to paddle. The west coast is a lot of uh, sand, well-known sandy beaches, and there's a, a scatter of a chain of islands from Barra in the south all the way up to Lewis in the north, all joined up by ferries or causeways, and there's there's just so much you can do around this area paddling wise and about how much geography does it cover oh just from the tip of lewis to barra just over 100 miles and there and roughly how many islands any idea uh well we have barra and then we have south east north east uh harris and lewis okay harris and lewis are joined so what makes this area so complex and challenging from a paddling standpoint? Uh, I would say weather. So tell us about that. Well, up the northwest here, we tend to catch all the low pressures coming across the Atlantic. If you have a hurricane uh, somewhere down in the, the Gulf, Mexico, it'll usually track across and we'll get the tail end of it. And is that quite often you get that kind of weather? The This winter's been like... Some of the winters we had many years ago where we've had probably non-stop gales for two months. Okay. So not much paddling uh, in the last two months then? Well, yes, we, we do. We, we can paddle in four eights, nines in some of the sea locks. Okay. But uh, only downwind. <laughs> <laughs> what we call a downwind run. Fair enough. <laughs> go, go in at the top end of the wind and uh, run down and uh, come out somewhere else. Okay. So how about tidal conditions? There's a few places where we have maybe up to five knots, but uh, nothing uh, much more than that. So you've done uh, some pretty significant crossings in the area too. Yes, I sort of got into that. Uh, I was paddling with uh, one of the boys in the club that was a very good paddler, and I used to, we used to go a lot of places together, and I learned a lot from him. And I just started getting, we started getting a bit more ambitious, we started off with the Flannel Isles crossing, which was, I think, after a year's paddling, uh, I did that crossing, which was 18 miles off the west coast of Lewis. And uh, from there, we he wanted to do go up to Rona and Sulskar, which is 40 miles north of Lewis. 
So we did a, a practice run from, we did the ferry route from Stornoway to Ellipur, which was 40 nautical miles. I think the ferry passed us four times <laughs> on the way across. And that was our, our training run for the, the, the big trip up north. I've only done that trip once, I've done the Munch once, and I've done the flannels four times, I think. Okay. So now what's the distance of those crossings for the most part? Uh, 40 nautical miles, which is over 80 kilometers. Okay. All right. So now a lot of folks have done 40-mile crossings or 80-kilometer crossings. What makes these different from other other large crossings? Uh, I think it's the exposure. There's no much traffic out there, and it's just getting the weather, making sure you get the weather right. If you get the weather wrong, you're in trouble. <laughs> any uh, any particular situations or stories from any of those crossings that uh, are, are particularly hairy? I think on the long one up to Ronan Sulskar, we went out in a first four, which was our limit at the time, and we camped two nights three nights up on the islands, uh, two different islands. And then the forecast was due to be a headwind on the day we were supposed to come back. So we decided to go a day earlier with a first six behind us because I said I'd rather go home with the wind behind me than try and paddle with the wind ahead. So that was one of the decisions we made, which was which was a good decision at the time, although it was a wee bit over our limit for, for uh, doing that sort of distance. That sounds like the right decision, though. That sounds like a, a little more fun than a, the force force six at your back than a force six in your face. Yeah, well, a force four, four to five in your face, it's always better to have the wind blowing you where you want to go than <laughs> going against you. Certainly. Now, how did you prepare for those crossings? Uh, like I said, the the training on the on the long runs, we've we've done twelve hours along the coast without getting out of the boat. And then we did the open crossing, the Elipur, uh, the, the ferry route. And when it came to the actual crossing, I think all the aches and pains that you had in the in the first ones didn't seem to be there. I, I don't know if you, it's maybe acclimatizing to the to the distance. What kind of time did it take you to, to make the crossings? Uh, it was 12, 12 hours. And uh, how many were in your group? Three on, okay. the, on the actual uh, crossing to Ronan Suzka. So a friend of mine and a previous guest on the show from episode number 40, Bonnie Perry, has uh, told stories of paddling St. Kilda, and uh, that's always fascinated me. And uh, I understand St. Kilda is, is one of the islands or areas out in the Outer Hebrides. Yes, it's, it's, it's well worth a visit. I always say to people, if you can get out there for the once, just the once, because it's, it's a bit like the land that time forgot, with its jagged sea cliffs and it's uh, well worth a visit. I, I have had, I did a lot of guide. I've been guiding out there for about over twenty years, and uh, I've had a few incidences with downdrafts, where I've had numerous people capsizing all at the same time. So it's it's quite a challenging area to paddle because there's there's nowhere to land really until you get back round to the, the starting off point in the bay. But well worth a visit for anybody that wants to go there. All right, paint us the picture. Tell us uh, if if you were in Saint Kilda, what would you see? What would you experience? What would that be like? Uh, there's the the history of it, where there was a community there. I think they left in the early 1900s. They just lived off seabirds, and the old village is still there. It is a, a military base where they they tracked missiles from the U.S. There's people stationed out there for all year round, maybe a dozen people. It used to be run by the 
the army. Uh, it's now by Kinetic, which is a civilian side of the, the military. And then you've got your highest sea cliffs in Britain, one of the largest gannet colonies in the world. The bird life out there is just fantastic. The caves are so deep. There's caves, caverns. I remember one time going out and uh, a couple of paddlers went into a cave. Three of them went in. One came out and I asked him where the other two was and he said that they, they went in. They went in another gap, which I, I didn't know was there. So I had to follow them through this and it followed them through. It ended up in a massive underground cavern and came out at a different cave further along the coast. The reason probably didn't find that one was because it's very rarely you can get so close inshore because of the swell, groundswell. Uh, but that day was pretty calm. Yeah, these paddlers just disappeared somewhere. <laughs> I didn't know that went. So that was, I think that's about the, the last known cave that I think we've found, found them all over the years. So they just they, they just disappear and the other paddler just decided to come out and, and thought nothing yes. of it. Yeah, it was quite a narrow gap to go through and there was a, a little bit of a swell, but uh, they just disappeared. So I had to go and find them because I was sort of looking after them. So <laughs> uh, the entrance to this cavern was right tight up against the far end of the cave. That's why it wasn't spotted in the in the years gone by. How long did, did the search take to be able to find them and get to that cavern and then end up making your way out? Oh, it didn't take long. I think the, the gap into the cavern was probably about 10, 15 metres, but very narrow where you had to, you couldn't paddle through it. You had to use your hands against the wall to just slide your kayak into it. But uh, it was pitch dark inside. And this is a guided group? Yes, a guided group. I used to take uh, myself and 11 paddlers. Now, I'm, I'm curious, and maybe you don't know the answer to this particular one, but what was going through their heads that made them decide to, to slip through this narrow crack um, on a guided trip and just kind of disappear from the rest of the group? The, that's the kind of thing you get with groups. <laughs> they, sometimes they like to do their own thing, and uh, they don't tend to listen to what you say, but uh, probably inquisitive, just a bit of exploring like, like we all do. Yeah. So you mentioned um, the highest sea cliffs in the Gannet colonies. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, the, the sea cliffs, are, they're not like normal sea cliffs. They're uh, sort of jagged peaks. There is special type of sheep on St Kilda. They're called the soy sheep. They're sort of dark, very small. The gannets are, are mainly on the, some of the sea stacks uh, where the gannets nest. Puffins tend, tend to nest on the main island. And the fulmers are sort of everywhere about. Gannets, if you're paddling round the sea stacks, they tend to sort of cir- circle the kayaks. They just keep go around in a complete circle, whereas they don't tend to do it with day trip boats. It just seems to be the kayaks that seem to be very interested in. Interesting. I wonder why. I don't know. I, I've gone past there in boats, uh, the big boats, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to happen. But if you're out in a a group of kayakers, they tend to just circle around. And you do get uh, droppings on your head quite often. Uh. The, the, num- the number of gannets it's about. Wear a hat and don't look up. Correct. <laughs> now, is it, is it one island or multiple islands? Uh, multiple islands. There's, I think there's two small sea stacks. There's uh, an island called Soy. And then there's the main island. And there's another island beside the stacks 
The island beside the stacks is about five mile from the main island. So yes, it's a, it's a group of uh, mainly three three different islands with uh, a few sea, uh, numerous sea stacks right in the boat. And, and how does one get to the islands? You could kayak it if you've got that way inclined. Sure. There, there is day trip boats run out there. Uh, I think they leave, leave Harris about seven o'clock in the morning. And you're back 12 hours later. I think you get four hours ashore. And there is another, the, the boat I used to use, they would go out there for, for the full week with the kayakers. And they would do St Kilda, do some of the sea locks around the main island of Lewis and some of the other islands to the south. So it was, a, depending on the weather, if you had any wind from the east at all, the bay wasn't very comfortable for anchoring, and so the, the boats would have to ship out and head somewhere else. So there, there's a variety of ways of getting out, out to the island. All right. Do a lot of people paddle out? Not in the last few years that I can think of. It's a very small group, maybe a dozen that have done the trip. What's the distance for that? That's uh, about 40, another 40 mile. From, okay. There is an island off Eust, which is seven mile off the west coast of Eust, which is a normal sort of stop-off point. You paddle out there first, camp, and then when the weather's suitable, go from there. I think it's about 32, 35 miles to St Kilda from that island. So from the, from the mainland, it's 70-something miles out? Uh, or did I get that wrong? So did you say 40 miles to a stopping island? From the mainland, I would say maybe 40. So have you done that crossing? Yes, I did that crossing in 2000. Now, you mentioned the in- inhabited. Would you say that they were the islands were not inhabited, or they, they still are? They still are, but not only for mainly for the military Okay. Uh, there's an insulation on used where they, they fire off rockets and they track them from St Kilda by radar. There is a warden, a National Trust warden, out there all summer. And then you occasionally get people going out to do stuff with the sheep. How can we say it? Re- research on the sheep. And uh, you get bird people going out to do bird counts and things like that. But... Uh, Apart from that, winter time it's mainly the civilians that are out there for the army base. So now the, the sheep, it's just a they're not tend. It's not a tended flock. It's just a just sheep that are out there. No, they're left to their own devices. Even if they're starving, they, they just leave them to their own devices. Now you mentioned that there were the islands were formerly inhabited, and there were uh, a lot of folks there. Why did they? Why did they leave? I think they maybe got too reliant on the visitors and the supplies from the mainland. And there was a lot of incoming diseases from uh, tourists in the old days because they they didn't have an immune system to the... Because they were so isolated, they didn't have the immune system to some of the normal diseases the people on the mainland had. And uh, a lot of them died off with, with various things. And the population was tending to go down quite a bit and I think they became too reliant on supplies from, from the mainland. They decided to call it a day. Now you had mentioned uh, experience with downdrafts and, and re- multiple rescues. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm guessing that's you know kind of leads to what makes the area so challenging from a paddling standpoint. 
Yeah, I think uh, Gordon Brown, uh, one of the coaches he's now in Vancouver, he, he was on that trip. It was one of the trips I had organised and uh, we were paddling around on a on a day that was, wasn't calm. It, it, it wasn't too bad, maybe a bit of first four and we were half halfway around and the weather started to look a bit dodgy and decided to call off the trip and we were wondering whether to carry on round to the next bay to get the boat to pick us up or turn back and we decided to carry on. We got hit by downdrafts coming down the, the hill on the bay on the other side. It was probably about 40-45 mile an hour winds coming down the bay and uh, people started capsizing and group got split up quite a bit. took us about three quarters of an hour to get everybody back safely on the boat. So it was quite an interesting trip. Now, what is it about the area that uh, that causes us? It's just the high cliffs and the, the geography of, of the area. And they say St Kilda makes its own weather. It can be a different place for weather compared to maybe further out at sea. And you, you do get violent squalls. I think a couple of years back we had uh, 100 mile an hour winds on the island and the recorded I think it was 180 out in St Kilda and they lost all their radar domes uh, off the top of the hill. So 180 That's, mile an hour winds? Yep. Yeah, wow. On the top of the hill. There was a piece of the radar dome found on one of the beaches on the west side of the island and that was a bit of metal and how that got there nobody knows. The only way it could have got there because metal doesn't float the only way it could have got there was through the air. And what kind of distance is that? About 40, 50 mile. That, that's, that's some wind. That's some wind, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the locals, uh, well, the, the ones that are working out there, they, they are restricted from going up the hill in certain wind speeds. They, they won't let them, let them go up the hill or sometimes maybe even go outdoors in certain wind speeds. So when you go out to St. Kilda, how long are you usually out there? That depends on the weather. We tend to, on a charter boat paddling, we tend to try and pick the best two days in the week and then go out there and spend that two days there. Uh, if it's rough when we set off, we'll tend to maybe go down one of the sea locks on the island and do a bit of paddling there, wait for the weather to improve and then go out to St Kilda. Some Sometimes you'll get a day out there, sometimes you get two, sometimes you get three. It just depends on what the weather's doing. If it picks up, the skipper will say, the weather's changing, we have to get out of here. So that, that's the end of the St Kilda paddling. <laughs> I've seen trips where we've only managed to paddle in the bay and had to head off. Other trips you'll get to paddle one side of the island and not the other because of the, well, of the swell. And then I know one person came back, he paddled one side of the island he came back the following year and he got to paddle the other side of the island so it's the luck of the draw so what are the best times to go the the charter boat starts running in may through to august i would say the best times to go out there are probably june july to get the be better weather and what can you generally expect in the, in the in the better weather not always calm you can get a summer gale you can get it blowing up to a eight, even in the summertime it's just Hebridean weather. So what are some of your other favorite paddles in the Outer Hebrides? The Monarch Isles is a, a group of islands to the south of the west coast of Eust. They're completely the opposite to Kilda. They're very, very flat. 
a lot of bird life and sandy beaches and generally any of the sea lochs around the island are quite nice the, the east coast is completely different to the west coast east coast is more rugged moorland sea lochs whereas the west side of the island you've got islands with sandy beaches so there's a huge variety of of paddling around the island I've, i tend now to struggle to find somewhere new to camp because uh, i think i've covered most of it and how often do you get out there as often as i can <laughs> i was out <laughs> last 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 weekend we do have to do my bits and pieces around about the the home and uh, i tend if i'm been too long sort of doing stuff like that i need to get back to sea and i just have to get away all right it's it's like uh, you need that fix every so often and uh, i'll just say i'm away camping for the weekend and what would you say some of the, uh, the the hidden gems are that people don't necessarily know about or maybe you don't want to reveal those uh it's mainly places where you can get to by kayak where you wouldn't get to in a normal boat there's lots of places you can go where a normal boat wouldn't go so hidden gems uh i would say the flannel isles is one of my f- favorite places to go and why there it's remote it's got the bird life it's peaceful there's no nobody there whereas if you go on to St Kilda there's people wandering about tourists people that are working there go out to the flannel isles there's nobody there but yourself are there a lot of tour boats that are making making their way out to uh, St Kilda there's three from Lewis I think there's a couple run from Skye some come from Oban, further south of Scotland. It's a very, very busy place in the summertime. Cruise ships occasionally, where you might have a few hundred passengers coming off, and uh, it can get quite crowded. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. it sounds like it. With all that traffic, I, I can see why you're uh, heading off to other places. The charter boat I was going out with, his main business was day trippers that were just walking They'd walk the hills and uh, go ashore and Kilda, walk up the top of the hill. And when the day trip boat started, it took away a lot of his business. Uh, the way I started guiding was one of the locals here was running an adventure thing and he, he started doing St Kilda trips by kayak on the charter boat. He asked me would I help him out and I said yes. He did that for about three years. I quite enjoyed it so I started running them myself. And now the charter boat his main business i would say is uh, kayaking trips where there's a lot of other providers starting to use this boat all right so what boat is that uh, it's called the kuma it's a uh, an ex fishery research vessel like very similar to an old uh, fishing boat all right and then so you're you're organizing trips and taking the kuma uh, for those trips yes right. i'm done for a number of years with things that were going on the last couple of years, uh, the everybody was put on hold. Will you pick up trips again, or uh, you're done? I probably won't organize anything myself, but if anybody asks me for, for a helping hand, I would certainly go. Well, I'll have to connect with you offline, and we'll get information about uh, how people can, can get on some trips uh, to head out there, and we'll make sure we put that in the show notes so folks can uh, figure out how they can see the... Um, St. Kilda themselves? Yes, uh, be easy enough. People just Google uh, the St. Kilda trips. It'll come up with all the providers that 
take people out there. Okay. I think it's a last couple of years it was 180 pound for the day trip I think moving back to your uh, to your Royal National Lifeboat Institute uh, experience and from your perspective on the boat and then your perspective as a club paddler as well um, what advice would you give to paddlers who were considering paddling uh, that area the area or, or uh, around, the, around the Hebrides yes maybe just ask for a bit of local knowledge from one of the local paddlers the, the weather can change here very, very quickly. It's it's not very often we get to paddle in uh, short sleeve cag and, <laughs> and waterproof trousers up here. It's uh, quite quite often you're paddling in a dry suit because the weather's are changeable. So what are some of your favourite stories from uh, from paddling the Outer Hebrides? I'm not sure how you can answer that. <laughs> it's just every, every trip is different. And uh, yeah, the long ones are... The paddle is long and boring, but the the end goal is, I think that probably the Sulescan Rony one would probably have been the, my best experience, paddling wise. Why was that? I think it was just the exposure, the distance. Nobody had done it before. I hadn't been paddling that long at the time, but it was just, yeah. I think, like I say, it was the distance, the exposure. I think it took me about maybe four months before I got back on the water after that trip. You'd had enough at that point. <laughs> no, I think it was just a, a day trip didn't seem to be appealing to me anymore. Okay. <laughs> I was always wanting to do more. <laughs> I did uh, have sort of plans to do the Pharaohs, but that could have been a death-defying trip if I got it wrong. I was asked, would I do it with a there was one of the boys that did it a number of years ago. That was Patrick Winterton and Mick Berwick, I think it was. He had asked me did I go wanted to go on the trip. I had a good think about it, and I thought, no, I think I'll try and live for a little while longer. <laughs> <laughs> now tell us about that route and what was it that uh, that turned you away from it? The plan when I was thinking of doing it was the stepping stone was Sulzgar and Rona. So you'd paddle out there, camp there for the night, and then you had... 140 miles to go to get to the Faroes, which was a huge, a very big trip. And uh, there was so many things that could go wrong there. So I thought, no, I think I'll leave that one for that, somebody else. That is 140 <laughs> mile crossing? Yeah. Nothing, no, uninterrupted, no islands, nothing else? No. Okay. Nothing. Did they do that? They did just, they... I think they were on, in touch with their weather forecaster by satellite phone and he says you need to keep moving because the weather's changing. And I think they paddled non-stop for, I can't remember how many hours, but they were getting hallucinations and they were absolutely done in by the time they, they reached the shore. And strangely enough, you turned that one down. I turned that one down, yes. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> It was risk. Yeah. <laughs> How about your yeah. favorite place to paddle? The Sound of Harris, I would say. The okay. Sound of Harris is the the stretch of water between North Eust and Harris. It's got numerous islands. You could probably spend a week, a whole week, paddling down there exploring. Okay. That is probably, uh, Sound of Harris is probably my favorite, favorite uh, part. How about your favorite place to paddle anywhere in the world? 
uh, haven't really gone. I've done a little bit of paddling on the mainland, but I don't, I don't think there's anything that comes close to paddling around the island so far anyway. All right. Now, which island in specific? Yeah, when you say paddling around the island, which island? Well, just uh, the Hebrides itself. Okay. Okay. So there's always been enough there for you that you never really felt the need to go elsewhere. Yes, I would say in the last few years was I've been in little bits and pieces that I hadn't been into before. And that was after about 30 years of paddling. So it, it does take you a long time to get into every corner. Yeah. So 30, 30 plus years later, you're still finding places to paddle I'm in the same find, area. Yeah, finding uh, places I haven't been. That's fantastic. Well, what advice would you have for paddlers coming to the area in addition to uh, local knowledge? Just come, come and enjoy. There's so much, to, so much to see. Like I would say, if somebody wanted to come up paddling this way, if they got the weather for it, you go down to the Sound of Harris. It's reasonably safe area. There's always an island you can hop onto somewhere. Whereas if you're coming up, some of the coastline, uh, some of the coastline can be quite exposed. And where's the uh, where's the jumping off point to get out to the islands? Which ones? Um, to, I'm sorry. Uh, where's the where's the jumping off point to get out to Saint Saint Kilda? Oh, Saint Kilda. It would be uh, there's a a bay on the northwest coast of US, uh, North Uist. That was where we started off from, and then we paddled out to a small island and camped there for the night. Some people have done it from from the mainland all the way without stopping on the island. Mm-hmm. Most most people have stopped overnight okay. on either, either the Monarch Islands or the Hashgar. So if somebody were flying in, uh, where would they fly into and then how would they get to the, the starting point? You can fly into Benbecula, which is the nearest airport for North Uist, or you could fly into Stornoway, travel down, catch the ferry across. What are the nearest major cities? Uh, Stornoway is the major, the major town in the Hebrides. Okay. Then you have Tarbert and Harris, and you've got Barad way down the south, and then you've got the small, small towns in the in the Uists. But if someone were going to fly to, so let's say, from the U.S. to to Scotland, what major city would they fly to, and then make their way up? I would say Glasgow, Glasgow, and then Glasgow onto onto the islands. Okay. Well, how can listeners reach you and learn more? Facebook page is probably the easiest easiest way. All right. I, we'll... I think I do do have my phone number on there if anybody wants to ring. All right. Well, we'll connect with you and get that information and add that to the show notes so folks can make a, make that connection. Yes, so. that's no problem. Well, Murdy, thank you very much. It's been wonderful uh, listening to you and, and learning from you and learning about the Outer Hebrides and your experiences paddling there. Um, I do have one final question for you, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Yes, I have had to think about that. I have paddled with Sean Morley before. He's now in the States. He'd be a good man to maybe do a podcast with. He'll have lots of stories to tell. And there's also Patrick Winterton, who stays in Oban, in the northwest coast of Scotland. He's one of the men that did paddle to the Pharaohs. Okay. So you've got a choice of two there. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, Patrick and Sean will work with you in, uh, in making the connection there and see if we can get uh, either or both of them on the show. Yeah, I'll look forward to listening to their podcast. All right. Well, Murdy, again, <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate your time. appreciate you joining us. 
If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I've not been to the Outer Hebrides yet, but the stories and the fact that Murdy has lived all his life in the area and found it so beautiful and diverse that he never felt a need to go elsewhere makes it that much more appealing. And unlike the ship he rescued, I don't think I'm going to bring my lawnmower when I go. A quick reminder that we're always happy to accept donations to offset the cost of producing, the internet hosting, and the other expenses that are associated with running Paddling the Blue. Just go ahead and you can visit paddlingtheblue.com, and at the bottom of the page in the right-hand side, you'll see a little icon of a coffee cup. You can go ahead and click that and buy us a coffee to help out. And if you're a paddling-related business and you're looking for a way to get in front of thousands of paddlers, connect with me at john at paddlingtheblue.com, and we'll see if we can help you out. Our next show will feature Russell Henry, and you'll recognize the last name if you listen to his father, Brian Henry, from episode 54. Russell and his brother Graham completed an incredible paddle from Brazil to Florida. And yes, you heard that correctly. You won't want to miss this adventure. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.